Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. We thank our distinguished witnesses for being with us today. Today's hearing will consider the public and private consider ways the public and private sectors can promote their mutual interests through economic growth in the developing world. As we all know, the administration is currently conducting a comprehensive review of our foreign aid policies and budget, something that uh, I certainly support. We talked a little bit about this prior to the meeting. With rising deficits, it is prudent to thoroughly review these programs, and I strongly believe we can strike an appropriate balance that recognizes the critical role of diplomacy and aid while ensuring taxpayer dollars are used in the most efficient and effective manner. The reality is that the United States spends only 1% of our federal budget on diplomacy and foreign assistance, and military leaders tell us that without these reforms, our brave men and women in uniform would more likely uh, be asked to enter harm's way. Still, in comparison to other countries, we are a very generous donor of foreign aid, and it's clear that official development assistance alone will not achieve the development goals we seek. Looking to the free market provides an opportunity for us to be more effective in fostering sustainability and will diminish the need for our assistance over time. Now more than ever, the private sector is playing an increasingly prominent role in the growth of developing and emerging economies. In many respects, <clears throat> businesses are making investments not out of charity, but because they see real potential <clears throat> excuse me, for gains in building suppliers and markets in the developing world. As a result, private sector interest in returns on investment is intersecting with longstanding public sector interest in promoting economic growth and development in the world's poorest countries. For example, the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, has it estimated that with full implementation of the World Trade Organization Facilitation Agreement, developing and developed countries could reduce global trade costs by as much as 15 percent. Not only does that, does that help developing countries attract investment, grow their economies, create jobs, and trade with the world, it also helps U.S. businesses export to these developing countries and build their supply chains. Therefore, we must look for appropriate ways to leverage shared private sector and public sector interests in eliminating unnecessary barriers to trade and investment, promoting business environments that will attract investment. Our witnesses today will provide examples of how their company's pursuit of business opportunities has intersected with public sector development objectives. I hope we'll hear about both the opportunities as well as the challenges of partnering with the U.S. government on development so we can fully realize the potential of private sector engagement. Thank you again for being here. I'll turn to our distinguished ranking member, Ben Cardin, for his comments. And again, uh, we look forward to a great hearing. Well, Mr. Chairman, thank you very much for convening this hearing. I am looking forward to hearing from our witnesses, and I agree with your assessment that we can always do things better. And in development assistance, we very much depend upon our partnerships with the private sector, and I'm anxious to hear how we can be more effective in leveraging activities in the private sector. Before that, I want to acknowledge some special guests that are in the audience for today's hearing. Tabau Asafi and his wife, Sarah Musi, are founders of Blessed Coffee, a diaspora uh, small business and benefit corporation based in Tacoma Park, Maryland, 
just a few miles north of the Capitol, and I just want to acknowledge them. Blessed Coffee employs a holistic approach to development, supporting schools and clinics, and providing training and investment opportunities to benefit the communities of 300,000 small coffee growers organized under the Romeo Coffee Farmers Cooperative Union in Ethiopia. I have visited their community here and have seen their approach, and I must tell you I'm very proud of what the diaspora community has done in building opportunity here in Maryland, but also giving hope uh, for entrepreneurship in Ethiopia. So I, I just really wanted to acknowledge that and, and thank them for their, for their leadership in, in our community. Maryland was, in fact, the first state in the nation to incorporate benefit corporations in 2010. Today, more than 30 states have followed suit. So I'm very proud to have Tabau and Sarah as constituents, and I'm even more proud of the example they, have, they are setting for social responsibility business practices. I know as members of the Maryland's large Ethiopian diaspora community, they are proud to invest in the coffee farming communities in Ethiopia. I wish you all the best as you continue uh, your, your venture. Today's private sector witnesses are also doing good work to promote international development. Your companies recognize both the social and economic benefits of improving the welfare of the international communities in which you operate. I look forward to hearing your stories. It is important that we highlight your work and hope it inspires more large multinational corporations to emulate your actions. The valuable contributions of the private sector to international development also highlights the significant significance of U.S. government development efforts. U.S. international development programs invest in people. Our programs invest in saving lives, educating young people, training farmers, doctors, and entrepreneurs. These programs exemplify U.S. values and promote the power of democracy and the importance of protecting human rights. When U.S. Inter international development is successful and inspires faith in our country, when it's done right, these programs help create a world that is safer through the U.S. and more open to U.S. economic opportunities. Mr. Chairman, I, I just really first want to underscore that I am pleased to see that later today we're going to pass the FY17 budget and that when we take a look at the appropriations that's within the sphere of what we're talking about today, we've done well. We've been able to maintain a strong uh, presence uh, by the federal government in development assistance globally. Uh, and I say that despite that during the consideration of the FY17 budget, we had uh, President Trump's FY18 skinny budget that was presented that had significant cuts in these programs that was not carried out by the Congress in FY17. Now, we're going to have our debate on the FY18 budget, and I hope our, our committee will weigh in, and I think our testimonies here today is important but one thing I just really want to underscore is I look at the companies that are represented here at the dais, and I look at Blessed Coffee, and I know the challenges they have of doing business in other countries. Our U.S. mission, our USAID missions in these countries provide the local expertise that many times is absolutely essential in order to be able to get these opportunities moving. And as we talked about before the hearing began, the United States USAID provides a lot of the basic infrastructure support that otherwise could not be possible for these companies to be able to do their business in these other countries. So th these are partnerships, and I, I, I just want to hear directly how we can leverage more private sector, but also at the same time make it clear uh, that there is a public role and how that public role can be done more, more efficiently. 
Uh, I also uh, want just to acknowledge, if I might, we have a couple witnesses that are here that are, uh, that are uh, we have the representative from Starbucks. I cannot let this opportunity go by without thanking you for what you're doing in my own state of Maryland uh, with innovative programs to help uh, challenged communities. Uh, you've shown social responsibility not only globally, but here in the United States, and I, I personally want to thank you for that. And with Congressman Colby here, I, I need to acknowledge uh, his extraordinary leadership as a member of the House of Representatives. I had a chance to travel with Jim uh, to Africa on a USAID fact-finding mission, and I must tell you, your legacy is, is very strong here in uh, the importance of of development assistance to our national security budget. I represent, I welcome the other witnesses that are here. Coke's a very important part of, of our community, and all of you do business that are very important, so we look forward to your testimony. Thank you, Senator Cardin. We welcome our witnesses and blessed coffee. Uh, thank you for being here. Our first witness is the Honorable Jim Colby, someone well known to all of us, former member of the U.S. House of Representatives from Arizona, serving from 1985 to 2007. Mr. Colby is an honorary chair of the Modernizing Foreign Assistance Network, uh, very much on task here today. We look forward to your testimony. Our second witness is Mr. Walt McNee, Vice Chairman at MasterCard, we had a chance to visit before the meeting for a few moments, and uh, just uh, isn't it great to have a business that uh, can be utilized in really helping uh, people in places uh, like where uh, Senator Coons and I were just a few weeks ago. He's led initiatives to foster public-private partnerships around the globe, and I know his testimony will be very valuable. Our third witness is Mr. Michael Goldsman of the Coca-Cola Company. Uh, my gosh, y'all are all over the world and a brand known to many, and know y'all have been very, very involved in, in helping us with this type of initiative. He's president of International Government Relations and Public Affairs. We welcome you. And our fourth witness is a competitor to Blessed Coffee, uh, Miss uh, Kelly Goodjohn from the Starbucks Coffee Company, where she's director of ethical sourcing, global social impact, and public policy. Y'all been a leader in those efforts. We thank you for being here. If you could each uh, hold your comments to about five minutes. Uh, without objection, your written testimony will be entered into the record. And if you just uh, will go down the line in the way that you were introduced, it will save a lot of time. So, uh, Congressman, thank you and welcome. Thank you very much, uh, Chairman. Corker and Ranking Member Carlin and the other members of the uh, committee here. It's a great pleasure to be able to testify today, especially with this distinguished panel who are really the practitioners of public-private uh, partnerships. This is certainly a timely topic to be talking about today as we consider the impact of United States assistance and contrast this with the foreign affairs budget for FY 2018 which, as proposed, would uh, significantly reduce our diplomacy and development uh, programs. So I want to commend uh, both uh, the chairman and the ranking member in this committee for keeping the committee focused on the importance of U.S. global leadership, effective partnership, and good development practices. As you mentioned, I serve as honorary co-chair of the Modernizing Foreign Assistance Network. It's a coalition of international development practitioners and foreign policy experts that advocate for reform that to increase the effectiveness of U.S. foreign assistance. It was founded in 2008. It's been a vocal advocate for elevating development as a national security pillar <clears throat> equal to that of def defense and diplomacy. I also appear today with the background of having chaired for six years, as was mentioned, 
of the Appropriations Subcommittee on Foreign Operations, responsible for many of the programs that we're talking about. Today, we face a growing number of complex crises uh, involving failed states and terrorist organizations, and we also see a number of developing countries experiencing high rates of economic development and improved health and productivity of their citizens. There is an important role for U.S. foreign assistance and private sector in each of these contexts. Recent presidents of both parties have partnered with Congress to make assistance smarter, more efficient, more effective. These efforts from the establishment of the Millennium Challenge Corporation, which I was very much involved with, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, PEPFAR, to enacting Foreign Aid Transparency and Accountability Act, the Global Food Security Act, Electrify Africa Act, all advance in different ways our national interests and the cause of development. The connection between U.S. foreign assistance, the private sector, and economic growth is clear. Eight of America's ten top export markets are former recipients of U.S. foreign assistance, and they're now close U.S. allies. In 1960, official development assistance made up nearly 70% of all capital flows to the developing world. Today, the figure is less than 10%, with the overwhelming majority of capital coming from the private sector, remittances, and philanthropy. Thus, there are significant opportunities for the U.S. to engage in the, the private sector to advance uh, inclusive economic growth and our own interests at the same time, such as supporting good governance, free market institutions, investments in infrastructure, and a capable workforce. The Millennium Challenge Corporation, I think, is an outstanding example of this approach. And USAID has transformed itself in recent years, increasing partnerships with the private sector, significantly strengthening its policy, evaluation, transparency, and learning capabilities. By focusing further on effective engagement of the private sector, U.S. development assistance can achieve even more. And so I would just close by recommending six steps for your consideration. First, strengthen U.S. development finance mechanisms, such as establishing a new development finance bank that would pull together different agencies like OPIC, and the Trade Development Authority. Work, second, work with partner governments to support policies and programs that are designed to foster a productive environment for U.S. and local businesses. Third, systematically review the effectiveness of U.S. Partners, public-private partnerships to determine how we can increase their development impact. Fourth, enhance coordination between U.S. development agencies and the U.S. and private, local private sector. One plan, the Economic Growth and Development Act, proposed by Senator Isaacson uh, in recent years, is do, would do just that. Fifth, build on the demonstrated success of the MCC by expanding its threshold programs and compact agreements to more countries. And finally, maintain and strengthen U.S. global engagement and development by ensuring that funding and aid agency, and aid agency structure reflects agency uh, effectiveness principles, clear objectives, and a global development strategy drafted in consultation with the development community. I thank you, Mr. Chairman, for this opportunity to give this brief testimony and look forward to any questions we may have at the end. Thank you so much. Good morning. <clears throat> Good morning, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Cardin, and uh, the other committee members. My name is Walt McNee. I'm Vice Chairman at MasterCard. I'd like to thank the committee for the opportunity to speak today about the private sector role in development and humanitarian programming. Billions of people around the world cannot meet their basic human needs, needs like food, access to health, 
education, jobs, and commerce. But the challenges stretch beyond the capabilities of governments and civil society alone. Private sector assets and expertise can create more effective, scalable solutions that improve the lives of those who suffer most. For MasterCard, we view our efforts as strategic investments in the long-term development of communities. A common misconception about MasterCard is that we are a credit card company. In fact, MasterCard is a technology company, and we are in the payments industry. Our network connects buyers and sellers in 210 countries and territories in an efficient, scalable, and secure manner. MasterCard has invested in building and expanding a public-private partnership division that measures our performance both in terms of financial and social impact. We leverage our industry-leading expertise in digital infrastructure, data analytics, innovation practices, and sustainable business models to build scalable solutions. We've developed transformational programs that deliver humanitarian assistance efficiently. We connect smallholder farmers to markets, and we work with healthcare companies to track the dosage of life-saving vaccines. Hmm. We do not and cannot operate alone. Notably, we rely on the knowledge of implementing organizations, such as Mercy Corps, World Vision, Save the Children, and the International Rescue Committee, that each have deep expertise in understanding beneficiary needs and delivering programs in extremely complex environments. Their inputs ensure we build products and services that are fit for purpose. We believe that long-term, sustainable private sector engagement in the development and humanitarian space requires incentives to encourage companies to participate. We're incentivized to promote citizen well-being, domestic security, and economic growth in the countries where we work because stable economies are an ingredient to building markets of the future. Plus, engaging, development, engaging in development and humanitarian work is not only the right thing to do, it also infuses our corporate culture with an intellectual vibrancy that drives greater internal productivity and enables us to attract top talent. To date, we have used our digital infrastructure to facilitate the transfer of, of aid to over 2.5 million vulnerable, vulnerable people worldwide. In 2015, MasterCard made a bold commitment to universal financial access with a goal of 500 million people and 40 million micro-merchants who are currently excluded from the financial mainstream. And we are well over halfway to meeting that goal. The private sector and public sector can each serve as a force for good independently. However, working together, we unlock the potential <clears throat> to achieve much more. Looking ahead, I encourage the U.S. government to consider, consider new ways to drive efficiency, security, transparency, and scalability in development and humanitarian programming. Promoting a digital means of aid distribution is, we believe, a significant step in the right direction. I, I appreciate uh, being able to speak today and look forward to questions. Thank you. Thank you. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, and members of the committee, thank you very much for the opportunity to be here today to discuss how the Coca-Cola Company creates shared value and contributes to international development through our investments in more than 200 countries and territories globally. In fact, this marks the 100th and 11th anniversary of Coca-Cola's international operations, 
And on behalf of more than 700,000 Coca-Cola system employees globally, we are honored to participate today. As our chairman, Mutar Kent, often states, neither business, nor government, nor civil society can solve the world's greatest challenges on its own. It is only through collaboration and creating a golden triangle of partnerships between these three actors that we can address today's global development challenges. I worked for the Coca-Cola company, both at our corporate headquarters, but also in North Africa, West Africa, and the Middle East. And I can speak from firsthand experience about the creation of shared value for the communities where we operate, as well as for the continued sustainable growth of our business. First and foremost, we are investing to respond to increasing demand from growing middle classes for packaged beverages. And this, some of the recent public investment commitments that we've made include a commitment to invest $17 billion across the African continent from 2010 to 2020, $5 billion across the Middle East from 2012 to 2021, another $5 billion in India from 2011 to 2020, and a billion dollars each in Ecuador and Argentina in the coming years. Since the Coca-Cola system is a local business in every country where we operate, our beverages are nearly always produced locally using local ingredients, local employees, local factories, and distributed through a local network of outlets and where consumers purchase them. As a result, we have an enormous economic employment multiplier effect. For every job in our system, a further 10 jobs are created in the broader national economy. And this means that we employ thousands of people in each of the countries around the world where we operate. Our partnership investment priorities are closely linked to our sustainability priorities. We know that for our business to be successful over the long term, communities in which we operate must be sustainable. Sustainable economically with good jobs and quality beverages, environmentally sustainable with access to safe water, and with strong community support networks that enable them to respond to their biggest challenges. We are proud to have worked with governments, NGOs, as well as private sector actors to address key challenges like women's economic empowerment, water stewardship, sustainable agricultural production, education, and improved medical supply change. And we have been privileged to work with the U.S. government as well as numerous NGO partners like CARE, Mercy Corps, the Global Water Challenge, the Millennium Development Corporation, the U.S. State Department, USAID, and the World Wildlife, Wildlife Fund, to name a few. Um, I would like to just focus on, on one project in particular, RAIN, which is, includes our USAID Partnership Water and Development Alliance to increase access to clean drinking water and sanitation and improving the stewardship of water in many developing countries. Um, we have invested in this um, because 300 million people in Africa lack access to safe water. The Coca-Cola Africa Foundation in 2009 established its flagship program, the Replenish Africa Initiative, and to date we've worked with more than 140 government, private sector, and civil society organizations to touch and improve nearly 3 million African lives with 65 million in investment from Coca-Cola and leveraging another 130 plus million investment from other sources, including public sector sources such as the U.S. government and the Millennium Development Corporation. 
we, we have been proud to work in these partnerships and to work on things like water stewardship and women's economic empowerment. And I'd be delighted to answer questions about the challenges or any further information that you'd like about these partnerships. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, and members of the committee, thank you for inviting us today. It's a pleasure continuing our strong relationship with this committee. On separate occasions, we've had the honor of welcoming members of this committee and staff to our Farmer Support Center in Rwanda to learn more about the work we're doing in development. Each day at Starbucks, we ask ourselves, what is the role and responsibility of a for-profit public company? And I hope my testimony today will provide a glimpse into how we answer that question. With over 11 years at Starbucks and working 20 years in supply chains, I've seen firsthand the impact that development work can have on rural communities. And we at Starbucks know that our success and growth in the United States depends on the success of coffee farmers abroad. Coffee is the single most trade, second most traded commodity after oil, and 25 million farmers rely on income generated from growing coffee. Core to our support for coffee farmers is our open source agronomy commitment. Starbucks currently operates eight farmer support centers around the world, from Indonesia to Rwanda to Mexico. And I'd like to invite the founders of Blessed Coffee to spend some time with our farmer support center in Ethiopia. Our open source agronomy approach provides free access to top knowledge to farmers from our agronomists, including information on new tree varietals that are disease resistant and good soil management techniques, all with the purpose of raising the profitability of farmers so that we can ensure that there's a strong future of coffee for everyone. Starbucks purchases 3% of the world's coffee, and while coffee is grown in some of the most beautiful locations, they're also some of the most challenging, often with war-torn pasts. But we see coffee as a stabilizing force, one that cr can create prosperity and economic stabilities in those areas. Coffee farmers in Colombia, as an example, really faced challenges maintaining their crops during the 50-year Civil War. Through an alliance with Starbucks and USAID, we're working with farmers, helping them refocus on their crop to improve the quality, and therefore these farmers now have access to a global market, including Starbucks, and creating economic stability in those areas. In addition to Colombia, we also source from other post-conflict parts of the world, like the Democratic Republic of Congo. In 2012, the US government invested in the coffee sector to revitalize a once vibrant coffee sector after decades of violence. As a result of this effort and creating a sustainable and resilient supply chain, Starbucks made a five-year purchasing commitment to purchase coffee from this region. And as a result, Congolese farmers are now uh, benefiting through higher incomes from coffee. In addition to using our green coffee purchases as a local economic boost, we also leverage the Starbucks Foundation, which really looks at and invests in critical needs for communities, whether it's access to water, sanitation, health or education. Additionally, we've established a $50 million global farmer fund, and this is a fund that gets low interest loans to farmers. And we'd like to scale this effort by partnering with others, such as the Inter-American Development Bank, the IFC, the US government, Root Capital, even our competitors, to ensure that farmers have access to financing and can reinvest in their crops. In summary, Starbucks understands that our success is linked to a very resilient and prosperous supply chain. 
and therefore we will continue to make investments by providing open source agronomy, access to funding, financing, and partnering with government entities and others. And in closing, I'd like to share a, a story of a female farmer, Jackie, that I spent some time with last year in Rwanda. For someone who should have low levels of hope, given the atrocities that she personally and her country have faced, she's a woman of remarkable strength. And she's working with our Farmer Support Center in Kigali to improve the yield of her coffee, to improve the quality, and therefore her income. <clears throat> she also had recently received a cow through one of our nonprofit partners. And this cow will provide food security, nutrition, and opportunity for her and her family for years to come. And while Jackie wasn't looking for charity, she was looking for a way to support her family. And we were very proud to be, play a small part on her journey. We look forward to continuing our partnership with others, including this committee to answer the question that we ask ourselves each and every day, what is the role and responsibility of a for-profit public company? Thank you. Thank you all for your testimony. I, I have to believe anybody listening to this would uh, want, as a big part of what we do, is to ensure that companies like y'all's are able to do business all around the world. <clears throat> My sense is there are very few Chinese or Russian companies that look at things in the same manner that you do. And I know y'all probably operate in those countries, but uh, we thank you so much for being here. And I just love to hear whether you look at investments in some of the places that you're talking about today as something that's primarily corporate social responsibility, uh, something you're committed to do as a global citizen, or where, uh, whether it's uh, uh, about developing a business and customer base for the future or both. And if the three companies could just briefly respond to that, I'd appreciate it. Certainly. Uh, for us, uh, it's both, and it, it doesn't really work if it's, if it's two separate uh, objectives. Uh, we think that um, sustainability requires profitability, which uh, shouldn't be too co controversial, but uh, without some sort of economic model, without some sort of sustainable economic model, we're talking about philanthropy, which is generally smaller and uh, less certain. So... For us, uh, it's completely tied. And while we are having trouble figuring out economic models that work um, at the beginning of these projects, we think in the, in the long term or the very long term, it will, it, it will provide some kind of payback. Would the answers from the other two be similar to that? Uh, Mr. Chairman, absolutely. I mean, we are moved beyond corporate responsibility to what we call shared value. So it's creating value both for the community, but also creating value that's going to help the long-term sustainability of our business as well. And if you could, I have a sense. I know Starbucks is going to say yes. Is there, what are some of the issues that inhibit your ability to actually go down this route in many of the countries that you're trying to do business in? Why don't you answer first, Kelly? Yeah. Thank you for the question, Senator. You know, I, I think there's the only limiting factor is this a, a small sense of stability that we can go in and, and make a difference. And I think that's where, as an example, working with uh, USAID and Columbia has been really a, a great partnership. It's it's a was a conflict area. We were able to go in there, having the U.S. alongside us to build up the economy in that area and the stability in that area, um, which is a win-win for both. It's a win for Starbucks. It's a win for that area. 
You know, I, I, as I've traveled, as many of us have around the world, so many of our ambassadors tell me that, that uh, so much of what we have done has been sort of a Cold War model of buying influence. And one of the things that we need to do is really promote the ability of companies like the three that are here to do business because it does create, as they've just mentioned, sustainable opportunities where you really create jobs and opportunities and obviously understand people there understand the way we do business which is helpful to their own culture so um, I do hope as a part of any revamp that that's a big part of what we do going forward. Um, traditional U.S. food aid has been delivered through bags of U.S. commodities that often take months to transport to beneficiaries and undermines local markets. Uh, Senator Coons and I saw uh, saw this in Uganda recently where it takes six months in many cases for food aid to get there. MasterCard's partnership with USAID provides food assistance more quickly and efficiently through market-based solutions like debit cards and electronic transfers. How does this partnership move beyond the emergency and into developing livelihoods, which is what we'd all like to see happen in prosperity for the beneficiaries? And I'm going to go ahead and add on. Critics often say that markets-based solution might create an opportunity for diversion and fraud, and have you found that to be the case? Um, in reverse order, actually the opposite. Uh, electronic commerce uh, provides great transparency, and it is one of the best ways to fight fraud. Um, so many countries around the world have, have found that there's an enormous benefit uh, from removing uh, assistance from cash and, and paper. Uh, protocols. Um, India did a s study that showed uh, something like 10% of the government to uh, citizen um, benefits uh, was, was saved through electronic transfer. One of the reasons India is trying to move to a cashless society. Um, the, so transparency, efficiency is, 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 is very much part of, of, of what we're doing. In terms of um, uh, American uh, foodstuffs, uh, that, ca that can happen as well. But in a crisis situation, it's really the first 72 hours that are, are critical. And I, I think a digital uh, delivery of aid is, is simply faster and more, and more efficient. And it actually promotes local economy, does it not? I mean, people are actually buying from those regions, which generates sustainability from the standpoint of them being able to take care of themselves over the longer term. Is that correct? That's correct. And then um, if the uh, infrastructure remains, there, there can be a great economic impact as well. And this is an editorial comment. I can't imagine anything more destabilizing than the monetization that we do, where we basically ship commodities over ask NGOs to sell it out of the marketplace at 50 cents on the dollar, basically destroying the local market in order to create cash. I mean, is there anything more back-ended, foolish, silly than monetizing commodities in, a, in an area where you're trying to stimulate growth? You don't have to answer that. Good. I'm myself. <laughs> Senator, Senator Cardin. Well, uh, and, I, and I applaud the work that our chairman has done, Senator Coons has done in, in modernizing our food aid. It does create an, a challenge, and that is uh, to get political support, because if you have commodities that you're, you're using, the farm program, for example, is benefited by it. So, but that's an issue that we have to deal with in our political system. If I could, since you brought it up, it's, it's less than one half of 1% of all farm exports. And what I have found, and please stop the clock not to use this time, 
What I found is when local farmers, I know back home in Tennessee, when I shared with them what they're doing, they're aghast. They have no idea that there's a farm lobby up here that's causing their commodities, which matters nothing to them, matters nothing to them relative to their own economic benefit. Um, they, they are shocked by it. And I think if we would just talk to local farmers around the country or farmers in our home states, they would revolt against this practice. But anyway, put time back on the clock. <laughs> thank you for the advertisement. Well, yeah. no, thank you. I, I, I think you're, um, we were proud of the work that we did together on that. And I, I agree with you. I just suggest, and I, today I think U.S. development assistance, foreign assistance enjoys much more political support than it did a couple decades ago. So I think we, the, the public understands the importance, and the testimony here today just underscores a point that this committee has been very strong about, and that is as we conduct our foreign policies, good governance, human rights, anti-corruption, democratic institutions need to be the framework in which we engage the international community. Because as you talk about Colombia, Colombia is a country that had a tradition of the democratic uh, system, and it allowed it to resolve its conflict, and hopefully the peace process is moving forward. And what, what you've been able to do is, is give the uh, economic pinnings so that the unrest uh, will not create a vacuum where extremists could come in. And uh, today, I doubt any one of the three companies here are happy about what's going on in Venezuela. Uh, it, 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 you can't expect a company to go into that environment and where you're questioning not only your return of investment, but the safety of your people. So our government has a strong obligation to help stabilize countries under democratic principles and respect for human rights and anti-corruption in order, for many reasons, but one of which, for what the chairman's talking about, to be able to build those roots in those countries in order to get um, reliable partners and consumers who can buy American products. So I agree with all of that. I, I, I want to ask all of you, I'll start with, with uh, Congressman Colby, uh, how important the U.S. mission is in these host countries for your economic uh, exploration and opportunities. And I say that from two points of view. One, uh, and I visited with Congressman Colby the, the infrastructure projects that the United States was instrumental in developing in parts of the world that allowed private companies to come in and be able to uh, uh, take advantage of that being in place. And then secondly, as you deal in these countries, how important is the U.S. mission I visit every time I travel our U.S. mission and see the economic officers, the USAID officers, et cetera, and I usually bring a list of Maryland companies that are interested in doing business and give them to the embassy and see whether we can advance those causes. So uh, as we're looking at the appropriate role for the State Department in its international affairs, including development assistance, how important is it for us to maintain capacity in the country missions with U.S. personnel that are American, but also our, our, our employment of the local expertise in the country that assists U.S. companies? Uh, very excellent question, uh, Senator Cardin. And uh, let me just say that uh, I think that uh, they are very important. The missions are important uh, in these countries. We're talking about public-private partnerships. So there's a public element to this. 
And I think there's two things that, that the uh, embassies and the missions do. One is they provide the link when, these, when our companies come to a country. They provide a link that, that is there. And the second thing is they can be the advocates for making the changes that need to be made in these countries that make it possible for business to, to flourish and thrive in those countries. It's often not the tariffs that are the big problem. It's the other kind of barriers that are the problem, whether it's social barriers, legal barriers, uh, trade-related barriers, customs barriers, those kinds of things. And I think it's those changes that our missions can advocate for and constantly be on the alert for and, and work to change those things. So I think they are very important to have those missions available to us. The three companies that are here, have the local missions and, and host countries assisted you in your efforts? I would agree, absolutely. It's, uh, again, it's on the advocacy side, uh, especially around social and legal issues. Um, if a woman isn't allowed to own land in a, in a country and we're trying to stimulate um, economic development and entrepreneurship, um, U.S. mission advocacy um, is very important. It's not something we can do. The flip side is that we're often um, uh, up against um, charges of being uh, simply an American company, uh, which in parts of the world is a bad thing. And so... Um, we have to uh, be very careful how we navigate that. I mean, we, we see ourselves as a global company that's domiciled in, in uh, the U.S., but sometimes there is, there is a flip side. Um, we work very closely with the missions, both from a pers perspective of having to help them be advocates for us when there is discriminatory regulation or policy being imposed by the local government, but also in terms of um, the shared value partnerships that we're creating, whether it's working um, on ensuring the delivery of medicines, the USAID missions in countries are critical partners for us in our project last mile, and the State Department is an essential partner in the scholarship programs we do. We could not bring, do the entrepreneurship training programs that we do without the in-hand partnership, some funding, but more importantly, the on-the-ground partnership with the State Department in each of the countries where we're doing it. And I would echo the comments and say that the, the missions have been very important for us as, from our experience as far as access to uh, local expertise and um, understanding the landscape. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Absolutely. Senator Flake. Thank you. Thank you for the testimony. I'm sorry I wasn't here to hear it in person, but uh, also great to see Congressman Colby. And uh, I, I don't know anybody who has more experience, uh, a number of levels uh, on this, in this area. And I'd be interested in your perspective, and I read some of the testimony with regard to Africa, for example. You mentioned a couple of examples, Ghana, uh, for example, with the MCC. Where has, what examples can we point to of where our programs to try to nudge these countries in the direction of reforms, economic reforms, and whatnot. Where has it worked? What are the best examples? Well, I think that's one of them. As a matter of fact, Ghana is a, is a great, great example of one that where our program, our MCC program, has really moved them. It's, and it's a shining star in West Africa where, unfortunately, there aren't as many shining stars as we would like to see. So that is one country that I would definitely say that we have had 
great success. But I think there's a number of other countries where the MCC Compact has worked uh, to make real changes within the, w the way the government operates. That is, the just to take the pr procurement process, that in many cases it is, we, because we insist on open transpar transparency and open procurement process, that doesn't, uh, isn't restricted to U.S. companies. That's a key thing about the MCC. It's not restricted to just U.S. companies. But the openness of that process and insisting that the government in that country follow that has led, I think, to, um, to reforms within their own procurement that has gone far beyond the MCC compact. So I think it's made those kinds of changes in a number of different countries, particularly in Africa and in Latin America. Great. Where uh, these countries or the companies represented here take advantage of OPIC? Can somebody talk about what, uh, where that's going, what we need to do? Uh, is that program working? Uh, go ahead, anybody. Overseas Private Investment Corporation. I give Please. a quick answer, which is uh, uh, we haven't uh, partic participated uh, too much with OPIC. We know, know of their work, and it's good work. It, right. Okay. It's not much experience with it. Okay. Great. Any others on that? Um, with regard to, I, I spent time in, in southern Africa. I was reading testimony with regard to Zimbabwe, one tough country where we haven't been able to, with development aid, nudge them really anywhere but where humanitarian aid, certainly PEPFAR, has been invaluable, uh, obviously, to many of the countries in Africa, particularly in southern Africa. And uh, what has struck me um, there is in, in southern Africa, for, for example, Namibia, um, where I spent 1989, 1990, we weren't there for them, they feel, during their liberation struggle. But since then, we've been there with things like AGOA, and with, uh, with PEPFAR and other things that have helped build a relationship there that has helped with security arrangements that we have, um, agreements on uh, wildlife protection and anti-poaching efforts. Um, Congressman Colby, can you talk about the value of, of soft power in that way um, in terms of what that enables and fosters and, and helps in our ability to work with these countries on security arrangements of other things that have a tangible benefit for people here at home. Well, we are all aware of what the Secretary of Defense has said recently about the importance of soft power and the fact that uh, he needs it as much as he needs any. If you don't provide the soft power, uh, he's going to have to have more guns and more bullets. And the soft power is, I think, extraordinarily effective. Uh, so I think it is very important. You, you touched on a couple of things. One, Zimbabwe is a spectacular example of our failure of, of aid. But as you pointed out, other sources of aid, like PEPFARs, GAVI on the vaccination programs, continue to operate in those, yeah. in those countries and are doing good work of saving people's lives. And so the, the multiplicity of different agencies that are working, public-private agencies, can make a real difference in these in these countries, like Namibia with the World Conservation Fund, and other others than that, do, helping to preserve animal kingdoms in the, in those countries. So I think there's a lot of ways in which we can do that, but the soft power is absolutely essential. We need to have that. You can't we can't have a, a, a military force around the world. We need to have the soft power. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Sheen, I do want to tell you that uh, I talked to President Carter this morning and shared with him that uh, 
with your leadership, we're about to, uh, to produce the bill that uh, deals with women and leadership, and, and uh, I just want you to know that that occurred this morning, and we look forward to marking up a bill that uh, you've led strongly on. So, Well, I appreciate that. I also talked to President Carter this morning, and he told me about your conversation, so okay. I said okay. that I would follow up. Very good. Well, he's quite sure a networker, isn't he? So, yes. yeah, Thank you. I'm feeling a little left out. I mean, I, I didn't talk to anybody this morning. <laughs> you lose. What can I say? Um, well, thank you all very much for being here and for the work that you're doing in so many parts of the world. Um, Mr. Colby, I, I think I'm going to direct this question to you, although everybody in your presentations talked about the partnerships that you've had with USAID and how important those have been as part of what you're doing. But what we know about what the president is proposing for the 2018 budget suggests that it will include dramatic cuts to the State Department, that it will also include dramatic cuts to um, development assistance. There is a suggestion that um, all of those development funds might be diverted into the Economic Support Fund, which is tied to specific U.S. political or strategic objectives, and that USAID will actually be collapsed into the State Department and not continue as a separate agency. So can I ask you how important you think it is that we continue um, the, these economic efforts and how important it is to have USAID and, as um, Senator Cardin said, the, the mission in countries that can work with our um, private sector partners in so many areas? The brief answer to your question of how important USAID is and whether it should be separate is that it's very important. If you fold it into the State Department completely, uh, there's a link, and there has to be a link, of course. But if you fold it into the State Department completely, what you're doing is you're subjecting it to the political considerations. I've seen that more over and over again with the Millennium Challenge Corporation. Thank heavens the Congress had the good sense to put private sector members on the board of directors there. Because it's a natural thing for the government officials that are on it to say, well, you know, we have some political objectives we really want to meet. Why don't we give a compact to this country uh, instead? But that's not the objective of what the MCC was supposed to be about. So I think it is very important that the USAID maintain its, uh, its independence. I also happen to serve, just one other comment I would make, is I also happen to serve as, in addition to this being honorary chair of MFAN, the Modernizing Foreign Assistance Network. I'm vice chairman of the International Republican Institute and on the board of the Freedom House. And in both of those cases, we're very concerned about the collapse or proposed collapse of democracy promotion. And I think that related to the things we're talking about here, here today, transparency, openness, corruption, all that, I think is extraordinarily important. So I do believe that those, we have a, a significant role for that as well. Um, I certainly share those views. I think it's absolutely critical that we continue the democracy promotion that we're doing. Um, as Senator Cor Corker said, um, I have been working on the Women's Peace and Security Act. I think that women's empowerment is one way for us to promote stability and um, development in countries around the world. So I would ask those of you who represent the private companies here what you've seen in terms of women's empowerment and, and whether you've seen that as being helpful in terms of promoting stability. One of the statistics that's one of my favorites is that women give back 90% of what 
they earn to their families and communities. Men only give back 35%. Um, so what have you all seen as you've been working in other countries? Thank you for the question. Um, women actually make up a significant part of coffee, of the labor of coffee, of the processing of coffee. And I think oftentimes they're underrepresented as far as their ability to get technical assistance or financing. And so a lot of the work that Starbucks is doing through our farmer support centers and working with other nonprofit organizations is how do we build up uh, empowerment of women in our coffee supply chains? Um, one great example is we've been working with a women's cooperative in Colombia, separate from our alliance with the government. And they're going to be receiving uh, a loan for the first time. And this is because they've been trained in with the technical side of coffee, the financial side, they now have the business acumen, and they're ready to take on um, a, a small loan, but one that will help propel them. Thank you. Others want to comment? Um, Senator, I just would build on that. I mean, we, we couldn't agree more. Um, women are a force multiplier for communities and for our business. We have what we call the Coca-Cola 5 by 20 initiative which is our um, effort to empower economically 5 million women by 2020 by giving them increased access to business skills training, financial services and assets, and networks of peers and mentors. As of the end of last year, 2016, we have reached more than 1.7 million women across 64 countries. And this is truly shared value. It's about empowering the women so they can earn more money, be more successful, improve the, the quality of life for their families and communities, but it also helps our business be more successful because they are opening retail venues or they are becoming more effective farmers and bringing the agricultural commodities that we need for our beverages closer to our production facilities. Mr. McNee. Just um, <clears throat> uh, quickly, we have, uh, I think, direct evidence of it in uh, South Africa. Uh, where they converted their cash and paper-based social assistance to, to a MasterCard. And so there are about 10 million people who receive it monthly. And what, what we saw was that um, women uh, head of households um, uh, behave exactly as, as you uh, suggested. And by having the money flow electronically, two things happened. One is they didn't have a three-hour bus ride to, to go and collect and stand in line, and so their time was available to them. The other thing is that their personal safety was enhanced because uh, so often when they received the funds in cash, it was stolen, and it was unfortunately often a, a family member who was uh, taking the money. Thank you very much. Yes, that's, we've seen that in other countries as well. In Afghanistan, I think that's also been true. Um, my time is up, but I just want to, um, given what we've seen about the importance of empowering women, I'm especially concerned that um, this administration is proposing eliminating the Office of Global Women's Issues, which has that focus. So thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator, I do want to mention my daughter was, uh, worked in Tanzania uh, creating village savings and loan programs where people would pool together 12 to 15 people, pool together resources and loan to each other to help small businesses. And one of the rules they had was no more than two men could ever be a part of it because beyond two men would, would mess the whole thing up. So I do want to say you're, that you're right uh, and relative to those monies being used to support families instead of other things. And I, I just... 
We, well, it, it might, uh, I, I wouldn't want to go quite that far, um, but, uh, but y'all are gaining, I know. Uh, Senator Paul. Uh, thank you to the panel for your testimony. Um, it has been said over time that foreign aid is taking money from poor people in rich countries and giving it to rich people in poor countries. That's the criticism that's been leveled against foreign aid. Um, throughout time, there have been a lot of examples of billionaires in countries that uh, seem to have uh, converted somehow some of the aid or access to the aid or access to goods somehow to their own personal aggrandizement. Um, the Mubarak family is said to be worth 10 to 15 billion. Um, nobody's quite sure how legitimately that was achieved, but um, some of us would argue that some of it came from the 60 billion that we've sent them over the last 30 years. Um, what would you say to that statement, I guess, Congressman Colby, and uh, agree, disagree, and better or worse than it used to be? Absolutely agree with your statement. It, we would be lying to ourselves if we told, we tried to say that there haven't been examples of where our, our assistance has ended up in going into the hands of a handful of, of people in the country and, and enriching them. And you mentioned a couple, and that's certainly, in my experience when I was in Congress, I've seen that. In, that country, in those countries myself uh, where this has happened. I think that's the importance of what we're talking about here today is what we've got here are these public-private partnerships where I think we're not talking about this is not a public-private partnership of Lockheed uh, or something, and nothing wrong with Lockheed, but just saying some major company that's selling huge numbers of aircraft. Do you, think we're, do you think we're a lot better, though, overall than we were 20 years ago as far as uh, you know, billionaire uh, leaders, dictators, despots taking our money? Uh, y yes. Do we have more as many despots? Yes, we do have as many despots as we have. But I think we're a little bit, we have a little bit better sense of where the money should be going. So I think we are in better. Going on to the point of trade and how we sort of improve the lot of people and do it in a, in a way that's mutually beneficial to the world. The uh, young man that burned himself in Tunisia that sort of set off the Arab Spring, there was a great article in the Wall Street Journal a couple of years ago uh, from Hernando de Soda, I think, wrote it, the economist from Peru. I'm, I'm familiar with him. Yes. And um, the point he made I thought was an incredible point. He made the point that um, if you look at the unofficial market, the black market of Egypt and of most countries, that it uh, exceeds our foreign aid like by 20-fold. It's just an enormous amount. And his frustration was really the man who burned himself. It wasn't a religious protest. It was that he couldn't get a license for his truck. You know, to, he wanted to become a truck farmer, which is actually what my family was when they came here. We peddled vegetables and then became truck farmers and then somehow doctors and other things. But the thing is, is that it was uh, that economic limitation. And DeSoto's point is that somehow we have to figure out, and I don't know that we can necessarily do that, but it's incredibly important for these countries if they want to develop, it's sort of uh, making the unofficial official, the black market, making, bringing it into the normal market and letting it grow. But so much of that is bureaucracy and socialism and too much government, lack of title to your land. You know, our capital in our country comes from borrowing mostly against our houses. You know, that's the biggest form of capital probably in our country, that or real estate, it's not some kind of borrowing power. But um, I guess knowing or understanding that that's part of the problem, what are the solutions, and are we closer to achieving those solutions than we've been in the past, Congressman Colby? Well, once again, uh, you, you are on the right track. You're, you're, you're absolutely correct. Hernando de Soto, of course, has made his... Uh, much of his name and the work that he's done on property rights in these uh, titles in countries like uh, Peru 
and then in, the, in, in, in Egypt as well. Uh, if you don't have title to land, how can you sell it? How can you develop it? What can you do to it? So you need to have titles, and these countries have not had titles. So just something as simple as that, I think, is one of the key things. Before you were here, I mentioned that the key problems that I think we face in these countries is not often the, the problem of high tariffs. It's the barriers within the country to, do, to making development happen. It's the internal things that, that occur that make it impossible to start a business, the number of regulations that you have. I think Hernando de Soto identified something in, in Peru to start a small business. It was 100, 179 or something like that, different uh, approvals you had to have. And I just wanted to interject one quick point. Um, we do a lot you know, with NGOs with democracy promotion that you've talked about. But I wonder if we do enough with the promotion of uh, good economic sense. You know, the, the NGOs that do democracy promotion, I don't think they're really necessarily extolling Adam Smith or Milton Friedman, but I don't know that we do. It seems like those ideas are what hold back the third world as much as anything. The miracle in Chile was all of a sudden they accepted great free market ideas, you know. Um, may not have been perfect, but I mean, there, are, there is definitely Chile still has, has done quite well over the time, but... I wonder if there's a, a role somewhere um, for something, and I just don't even see a private role, but for some kind of uh, group that believes in international trade to promote the ideas of, you know, title, you know, capital, and how it develops so these countries would choose it, you know? I, just to conclude, I think there is that, a role for that, but right here we have the practitioners of the people who are in the country doing this on a daily basis and, and that's the best antidote for the problems that these countries face. You know, we have a, a global gateways piece of legislation that I'd love to talk to you about that promotes all the things you were just talking about, and I really appreciate the line of questioning. Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to the panel, and uh, I'm thrilled to see that Congressman Colby is still uh, at it and a strong voice uh, including in his days in the House where foreign aid at that time and generally the engagement was, were not the, the hallmarks of the views of the time. So I, I appreciate your long-term commitment. Uh, I, I appreciate the committee looking at this one component of foreign aid and investment, uh, but I would hate for any of us to leave this hearing uh, with the impression that somehow now or in the future, uh, private uh, businesses and corporations could take the place of U.S. foreign aid uh, in development overseas. Uh, comprising less than 1% of the federal budget are foreign assistance, and assistance may really be a misnomer, uh, is a critical foreign policy tool uh, that promotes our values, our interests, and it builds strategic alliances for the United States. And so I applaud what you're all doing, uh, but I worry that uh, there are some views that we can head in a direction in which we can dramatically uh, reduce that foreign assistance and what flows from it. So uh, I, I would uh, take the opportunity here and stress that again. I would wonder, if, uh, I've, I've gleaned from the written testimonies you provided, in fact, many of the work, uh, much of the work you do is in either in cooperation or working off the information that, for example, agencies like USAID have. Is that a fair statement? Mm -hmm. Yes, it's fair. And uh, USAID is, uh, I think, the largest funder 
of our partners. So uh, that funding is critical to their success. So if we're dealing with the Red Cross or, or World Vision or, or um, Save the Children, there's, there's an enormous funding provided by USAID. So it's, it's critical. And if that was dramatically cut, there's only so much that you're going to be able to do, even as you are good corporate citizens and also see a value. There's only going to be so much that you're going to be able to do in that respect, right? Because it seems to me like USAID, MCC, and others lay the vertebrae, the, the backbone of the development uh, issues in which you will be able to engage. Senator, um, if I could just add, I, I couldn't agree more. There is absolutely a critical role for government and government aid in this process. There are sectors and parts of the economy that the private sector can't be um, invested in, developing the rule of law and helping ensure intellectual property protection. We, we can't public-private partner on that to help develop that capability or to build the transportation infrastructure on which our delivery trucks actually can deliver Coca-Cola beverages around the world. These are things that governments have to invest in, and then we, we can do public-private partnerships in the areas that are actually priorities for our business and make sense both from a business and a sustainability perspective for us to build in, but there is a critical role for government to continue. I appreciate that. Now, when the United States government selects organizations and governments with whom to partner uh, on development initiatives, there's a lengthy vetting process of these organizations to determine not only the feasibility and success of a particular project, but to ensure that U.S. taxpayer dollars are going to reputable and reliable partners. Uh, for anyone on the panel, can you tell me what steps do you take to ensure that the people and organizations with whom you work adhere to international human rights and governance standards? Is there anybody who does that? Um, well, first I would say we work with the State Department and we certainly ask the U.S. government their opinion um, before we engage in many of those partnerships. We have our own supplier guiding principles and we have specific um, audits that are also done with various partners that, that, that we have. So, But I, I would reiterate that the U.S. government's opinion about in-country actors and, and their reliability is a critical part of, of the information that we gather. Mm -hmm. Is that generally true for the rest of the panel? No. Let me ask you uh, this, uh, Congressman Colby. Uh, we have in New Jersey a very large diaspora of many parts of the world uh, who have embraced the American dream, been successful, they want to help their home countries. Uh, I hear from many about the USAID procurement and contracting process is often opaque and difficult to understand. Do you believe that there are reforms that can be made within the U.S. government, USAID in particular, to help capture and effectively utilize the enthusiasm uh, from these communities? Yes, there, there are. And I think, actually, uh, USAID has undertaken, in these last several years, has undertaken a lot of those reforms. It's definitely much improved, I would say, but there's certainly much more to be done. Uh, I cited earlier the Millennium Challenge Corporation, which Congress had the good sense to set up and say that the procurement didn't have to come from just a U.S. company, but it was a, an open process, and I think that has been, has been very, very helpful. Uh, so I think there are things that can be done. We can certainly make it better than it is today, but I think we have made significant improvements. 
Thank you. I, I do want to respond. Uh, you know, this, this hearing is actually to highlight, you know, aid and the way we can leverage it, just like uh, Senator Coons and my trip to Uganda recently was. I'm all for top-to-bottom reviews. I think we ought to do those kind of things constantly. I know your companies do that, you know, every year. Um, but I think, you know, what we should highlight is how to leverage what we do and, and maybe reform it, as you just mentioned, in such a way to deliver even more aid and stability around the world. And to an earlier comment someone else made, I, I don't get the sense that the beginning point of the administration in any way is to subsume USAID into state. I mean, I think they're looking at how those things should work together, but I don't think the beginning point is that. I know there's been a lot written about that, but I, I just don't think that's where they begin. could end up there, but I don't think that's their beginning point of view. Senator Coons. Thank you, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin. I'm grateful for our panel of witnesses. Congressman Colby, for your long service, I know you don't remember, but we met when I was in the private sector and you were representing a district in Arizona, and I've had a great opportunity to visit sites uh, where Starbucks uh, and uh, MasterCard and Coca-Cola are doing good things around the world. And I'm a strong believer uh, in engaging uh, and mobilizing public-private partnerships as a way to extend uh, the catalytic power of federal leadership, but to make it go farther with the insights uh, the connectedness to the ground, the applications of new technology that the private sector can bring uh, to bear. Uh, in my recent visits to five different uh, posts and countries, uh, the first one with Senator Corker, but others in South Asia as well, um, I recognize there is real concern amongst the staff of USAID and the State Department about impending budget cuts. Uh, and to anyone listening, I just want to reassure them that uh, we intend to pursue a a disciplined and thoughtful uh, course. The president can propose whatever budget he wants, but at the end of the day, it is the Congress uh, that makes decisions about our strategy going forward, and I view this as a constructive hearing that helps us better understand the potential for public-private partnerships and what they can do. Um, let me just ask if I might of you, Congressman Colby, and then if others want to pitch in. I see a lack of access to capital routinely as a major constraint uh, for development, particularly for smallholder farmers, for women's cooperatives, for startup manufacturing companies. Um, would an empowered development finance bank help address this challenge? You mentioned it in your opening comments. Uh, what sort of a difference uh, would a newly reimagined development finance entity by the United States uh, contribute to this challenge? I think it could. I'm not an expert in this, and perhaps some of the people here at the table would have a better uh, answer to this than I could give you. But I think it could make a difference because our, our, our efforts right now are very fragmented, uh, whether you're talking about Trade Development Authority, OPIC, the Exim Bank, uh, the Millennium Challenge Corporation, wherever we're talking about, it's very fragmented. And I think there are some ways in which we could uh, have a better way of making sure that the capital was flowing in the in the amounts and into the right places that we need. Well, so I think it's something that's worth exploring. That's why I was suggesting it. It is, it is certainly worth exploring. Let me just ask if there's anyone else in the panel who has seen uh, most of our major economic competitors have significantly bigger, broader, better funded, broader authority uh, competitor financing institutions. Have you seen that? Have you seen the impact of that in the developing world? Senator, I would just add that I, I think it, it could be helpful, but what I think is important to realize is that it needs the deep resources in 
not just of money, but people on the ground in country. Because what we have seen in the partnerships that we've had with big financial institutions is that they don't actually have the capability to identify the women, for example, who could get a small loan. And they need us and the Coca-Cola system, and that's why 5 by 20 is so powerful, is that we have this network of thousands of women that we are working with. And so there's a, a way to for them to say, well, actually, it's, it's viable to give this woman a loan because she's connected to the Coke value chain and we see something there. But on the whole, those bigger financial institutions, they don't have those kind of on-the-ground resources to actually identify individual beneficiaries. And so that on-the-ground resource is really critical. Well, and I'll just say that Coca-Cola has literally the single largest network on the continent of Africa, the single largest employer. Susan and Boy have had a chance to meet a couple of times and for me to hear and see what that means on the ground. If you would, Mr. McNeil. Yes, uh, and uh, I think it's something we're seeing now more and more uh, when we bring digital commerce, electronic commerce, Mm -hmm. uh, for example, to a smallholder farmer, we're creating data. Uh, it's no longer anonymous, it's no longer uh, some kind of secret what they do, and they can slowly build a profile which lets a bank, a local bank, uh, lend to them uh, just uh, essentially a credit file. I've got relatively little time left. If you would, Mr. McNee, just tell us a little bit more about the Tukuzi model. Um, It was in your written testimony. I don't think you you spoke about it enough yet, and I think it's very compelling. Obviously, anyone from Delaware loves it uh, when credit cards get extended to the world, but it's much more than that, and I wanted to give you a moment to talk about that. And if the chairman would indulge me, Ms. Goodjohn, I had a chance to visit uh, in Rwanda a Starbucks-sponsored smallholder farmer education uh, center. Anything more you wanted to say about the coffee value chain and access to water? I'd be grateful if each of you would speak briefly to those points. I'll be uh, very brief. Um, this uh, product, Takuzi, came out of a, uh, a lab that we established in Nairobi. Yep. The Gates Foundation uh, gave us $19 million to set up an incubator in Nairobi. One of their first pro- uh, uh, products was Takuzi. It's essentially a mobile phone-based um, uh, product for smallholder farmers uh, that lets them access markets directly as opposed to being um, uh, forced to work with agents who are middlemen with the ultimate buyers. Um, and so it doesn't um, destroy that agent uh, relationship, but it, it opens up information so that they know if they're um, selling some produce for, uh, for a nickel uh, per if, if they can see the end market is, is a dollar, the information is changing uh, their own economic behavior. That's exciting. Ms. Goodjohn, and then we'll conclude. Thank you for the question. So, yes, uh, ensuring that these communities that are growing coffee, oftentimes rural, oftentimes smallholder farmers, um, is very critical for Starbucks. Uh, we leverage our Starbucks Foundation. For years, we've been investing in clean water around the world, in Indonesia, Colombia, Guatemala, Mexico, Rwanda, Tanzania, et cetera, um, all with the purpose of trying to create resilient communities so that in addition to investing in coffee technical assistance, they also have strong livelihoods. That's wonderful. Thank you. I'd like to thank the whole panel, uh, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, for holding this hearing. I see enormous power in uh, leveraging the private sector and the strengths of their value chains, their analytical capability, and I'm excited to keep working with you both on this in the future. Thank you. I think all of us saw uh, why Governor Branstad had been elected for 23 years uh, last week. Uh, 
incredible politician who was able to tie things to anecdotes and things back home. But I have to say, you and you and Senator Cardin are doing a marvelous job today and would, would rival him. Uh, Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thanks to the witnesses. A couple of different topics. I heard you all testify um, that in your own engagement through your companies or the IRI and others, you work very closely with the missions in these countries. That's how you leverage success on international development and your own business interests. So it is imperative that we fill out the missions as quickly as we can. The chairman and ranking have a good track record of getting things through once they come to the committee. We're, uh, I really hope the administration will give us the names so we can fill out the mission. And then, frankly, even though the committee often acts with great expedition in getting things to the floor during the latter half of the Obama administration, it was very difficult to get people approved. You've testified that it helps your work to work cooperatively with the mission. That means the mission should be filled, and I hope we'll all work together expeditiously on that. Um, on public-private partnerships, one of the uh, entities that helps in this area is OPIC. The President's budget proposal zeroes out OPIC. We've got a company in Charlottesville that's actually kind of jointly in Charlottesville and in India called Husk Power Systems that's developed a very small energy-producing technology using rice husks that they have deployed all across India, and they they were greatly helped by an OPIC loan. Um, if we're going to be about public-private partnership, as, as Congressman Colby said, there's got to be a public in there somewhere. It's not all going to be private, and I think it would be very short-sighted to eliminate an agency whose purpose is the public-private partnership that adds value to the international development chain. I want to ask um, Ms. Goodjohn and Mr. Goldsman about this. Both of your companies, Coca-Cola and Starbucks, have done a tremendous amount of work to promote um, a new energy economy and to grapple with the realities of climate change and build into your own business models strategies to, um, to work on reduction of greenhouse gas emission, carbon footprint, and even to support our initiatives like the Paris Climate Accord. And I, I applaud you for that. I gather your companies wouldn't be doing that if you didn't believe in the science or if you thought working on climate change issues were somehow harmful to the economic health of Coca-Cola and Starbucks. Am I fair to make that assumption? Uh, abs absolutely. We, we see with climate change even greater risk to water scarcity and quality. We see the movement of agricultural commodities changing in where they can be cultivated, and those are certainly significant risks that we see to our future growth. With regard to coffee farmers, you know, we need a resilient and stable supply chain. Um, and with changing weather patterns, we're trying to support coffee farmers through our farmer support centers and, and nonprofit partners to build up the capabilities of those farmers to help them adapt. So whether that's improving soil, shade trees, other, other things that will help them adapt to changing weather, um, that's very important for a long-term supply of coffee and to keep those coffee farmers growing coffee. Do you see the United States' participation in and even leadership of other nations on things like the Paris Climate Accord as, as counter to the economic interests of Coca-Cola and Starbucks? I, I would just say that we um, have our own um, targets in place about what we are doing to make sure that we minimize our impact on the climate, and that's going to continue regardless. And so that, that's what I would say. As, as far as either of you know, your companies haven't taken a position that we shouldn't be involved in the Paris Climate Accord, correct? Correct. Uh, Starbucks is part of a business coalition that uh, supports the Paris Climate. 
I, I worry about this, and I was asking this the other day because I thought Governor Branstad's story was so powerful about the connection between a clean energy economy and a strong economy for his state. And, I, and just my own thought, I would view the U.S. backing out of the Paris Climate Accord as essentially a statement of pessimism. We don't think we're innovative enough. We don't think we're economically creative enough to be able to meet our obligations. And why would we be pessimistic when we've got you know, great companies or great governors or great ag sector in Iowa who are showing us the way forward. So that's just my own editorial comment. And finally, Congressman Colby, I, I really appreciate the work that you're doing on democracy promotion through IRI. We've had a lot of hearings in this committee and armed services too where I serve about, about sort of the whole Russia angle. And one of the things that Russia is interested in, they, they don't like the U.S. presence near them, but there, there's, a, there's a bigger thing at stake with Russia right now is they're really trying to undermine the notion that democracy is a preferred model of governance and that maybe authoritarian government is just fine. Maybe it's even better in the 21st century as you're dealing with terrorism issues. There's significant effort to undermine the notion that democracy is a preferred government model. And groups like IRI and others that do democracy promotion, if, if the U.S. isn't promoting democracy, who's going to do it? Uh, Senator, you're absolutely right. Uh, without getting into the, uh, the the weeds on the issues of the presidential campaign, uh, the activities of Russia and the former Soviet Union to undermine democracy around the world have been going on for a long time. We can go back to the end of World War II and look at how they tried to change the French elections then uh, in a way that would have elected mm-hmm. a socialist or communist government back then. So this kind of propaganda is not anything new. What is new, of course, is the technology that exists there, particularly the social media that enables them to do things that they haven't been able to do before. And that's one of the things on at, at IRI, International Republican Institute, Freedom House, which I'm also on the board of, POMED, the Project on Middle East Democracy, which I'm on the board of, are all trying to do is to make sure that democracy gets promoted that we, we uh, encourage people how to use the media in a, the, the uh, social media in a way that uh, enhances democracy, that promotes it, that encourages it. And, and so these programs are very important, and they do rely on government support. Our, most of our grants, we do have grants that come from the private sector, mm-hmm. and f- I might add from foreign countries. But most of the grants come from USAID, from, of course, NED, which is the National Endowment for Democracy, and from the State Department. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Mr. Chair, for letting me go over. Absolutely. Thank you. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. And, and, and I certainly accept the premise that the point of this hearing is to lift up uh, the great work that's being done in private-public partnerships. And, and I thank you all for the commitment. And I think what you're hearing from you know, this side is um, you know, a real worry about what's happening in this administration. A lot of us feel that there you know, seems to be a, a, a really strong bias against diplomacy and development aid. The budget proposal for state was would have been absolutely devastating, and I'm glad that our budget rejects it, although I will note that our budget still does include a $600 million cut to the State Department. Um, and then we've heard these rumors, as you mentioned, about the state taking USAID in, which would greatly damage their ability to do their job side by side with rumors of up to 2,300 position cuts, largely through attrition. Um, and uh, so I, I appreciate your 
comments that uh, these may just be rumors, but um, I, I would. I don't hope. think the latter necessarily is just a rumor. The, yeah, the first yeah. Nightmare. Twenty. So, but twenty three hundred yeah. cuts, yeah. you know, by attrition to the State Department, um, you know, would be absolutely crippling to to the State Department and the USAID's mission overseas. Um, anyway, I, I hope at some point we'll be able to get a high level. Uh, State Department witness before this committee so that we can ask some of these questions in uh, in open session. I know that's difficult when there aren't any. Very few exist. Yeah, <laughs> um, but but again, that speaks to you know another concern that we have that this doesn't look accidental. This looks uh, this looks pretty purposeful at this point. The failure to uh, to staff the State Department uh, at high levels. Um, so, with those concerns in mind, I, I, I just want to ask our, our panelists: You're involved in in countries with a with a medium to large USAID footprint, and you're involved in countries that don't have as big a U.S. footprint. You might be involved in countries where uh, China is more involved than the United States is. Can, you've sort of spoken to this a little bit here and there, but you know, talk to us about the consequences of the United States essentially withdrawing from the development playing field. What happens if you don't have USAID or State Department to partner with? What's the consequences to your work if all of a sudden you show up to a country where you got to lean on USAID, got to ask for their advice, and they're gone? Tell us about the importance of that work that you, that you do and the threat if that relationship no longer exists. Thank you for the question. Um, you know, Starbucks has and we will always continue to invest in these regions because it's important for our business. It's important for us to have the stable supply chain. But, you know, having the presence of the U.S. government to be able to scale the work we're doing, to be able to scale some of the knowledge and, and connect with the local resources and understand the landscape is, is very important. I, I, I would just add that, you know, we're giving up the scale opportunity. So the impact that you can have through the partnership is that much greater. Um, there, there are other actors, China among them, certainly on the African continent that is making major investments. Um, they generally do it in a different way by bringing um, much of the labor force with them to, to do the work of whatever they're building and constructing as opposed to building the capability um, locally and doing those partnerships that that create knowledge there um, on the ground. And so I think the U.S. does give up some of that, um, that, that engagement with the local government by not being present. The, um, and we're, we're all scale players, um, but the, the funding um, uh, provides for reach. So it, it, I think the change would be uh, how many jurisdictions could be uh, influenced. Mr. Goldsman, you're you're involved, you know, in virtually every country around the world in some way, shape, or form with respect to commerce. You talked about the limits of what you can do with respect to issues like rule of law, but you're selling product in a lot of places with high levels of corruption, both at the national level and at the local level. What is the role for a company like yours to try to have some say? Uh, on rule of law and on governance, given the fact that y you are uh, putting a lot of money into these local economies. Is that purely a public function, or is there a role for private companies to play uh, in jurisdictions where you have major corruption programs and you're selling a lot of product? 
What I would say is I would look at um, what we've done very publicly with the State Department and our disclosures uh, in terms of our investments in Myanmar, where we have put out reports on an annual basis that look at the situation and the challenges of doing business there and being very transparent in the reporting on that. I would say that it's difficult for companies, private sector actors, over which the local government actually has regulatory control to be able to be the voice to push them in that direction. And so that is the role. I mean, we, we would face uh, issues, for example, of intellectual property, people wanting to take our trademark, use our trademark packaging or other things, and put something else in that. That's, that's something that we need support of the U.S. government to be able to engage on and to help combat that in the countries where that's happening, for example. And things like workforce training and the ability of uh, a workforce to, to be able to do the kinds of things we need, for example, in one um, country where we were building a new facility, we had to import um, the plumbers because there weren't qualified plumbers to work on stainless steel piping that we were using in our facilities. These kinds of things are long-term investment in development planning that private sector actors can't, can't do just on their own. The government support and partnership and major investment in that is really needed to be successful. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Markey. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Um, donor fatigue is a well-known problem that we have in this area. Um, when Haiti suffered their catastrophic event in 2010, $3 billion of aid went in. 1.1 uh, billion of it came from the United States. But by 2014, Haiti was down to uh, a level of aid that was lower than 2009, the year before the catastrophe almost like out of sight, out of mind, forgetting it. So obviously that's, that's a real challenge for us because the, the fierce urgency of now gets replaced by uh, something that uh, then draws people attention away and it gets forgotten. Uh, Mr. McNee, you have testified that private sector um, development uh, partnerships require shared values that help companies build their brands within recipient uh, companies and create new markets for their products. Could you talk about that in terms of the, of the private sector contributions to a country, to its development, if that market doesn't develop uh, the way in which the private sector company uh, had been anticipating that it would? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's our hope that we can uh, um be part of the impetus uh, for for development uh, in Haiti when the when the aid was being delivered, um, we, we we learned a lot in Haiti. The electronic or, or digital aid was being uh, delivered uh, a week faster than the the, the more traditional uh, in kind aid. Um, what's important to us is that um, we work on long term economic uh, models. So that um, you, you shift from humanitarian aid to development. I mean, it, there's a border there. It's a blurry. It should be a blurred border. Um, and so, um, just fixing a problem and then leaving is is really not what any, what any of us uh, want to do. Um, so, 
are there risks in measuring success uh, by whether or not there has been a private sector development that the that the um, companies that had uh, philanthropic groups had been expecting that didn't occur, and therefore the country is in a situation where <clears throat> the in Haiti is a good example where there is a kind of an abandonment that has taken place. The United Nations doesn't provide the funding that it had promised today to deal with the aftermath of the epidemic that broke out and the inf investment in the infrastructure. And at the same time, that then has a, an impact on the private sector uh, that is thinking about moving into that community. So can you talk a little bit about that interaction? Certainly. So um, our, um, our approach to humanitarian and development uh, programs is essentially our approach to business. So what we're trying to do is apply our, our capabilities, our assets, our technologies to, to the humanitarian and development issues, but we're using the same logic, the same calculus that we do in business. Uh, so it's, we're taking a long-term view. Um, I think I understand your question. Is there, you know, is there, something, is there something that Congress can do to incentivize companies to move into areas that may not pay back a huge immediate dividend, may not pay back some, a dividend at all, but that perhaps Congress could create an atmosphere that is welcoming to your investment, encouraging your investment in a, in a country that needs that private sector. Um, Mr. Goldsman. I, I would just add, look, we, we are present in more than 200 countries and territories. We are invested in all of them for the long term. It's not about um, is the economic development this year sufficient, and if it's not, then we're, we're looking to, to reduce our presence. We are there for the very long term. Um, and like, like my colleague from MasterCard or Starbucks, we are investing in projects that are very long term. It, it, it's, it's different than trying to respond to the immediate aftermath of the earthquake. And when we did that in partnership with USAID on a, a, an initiative called um, Haiti Hope, it was investing to help Haitian mango farmers. And they are now more productive and shipping those mangoes to, to the U.S. and for sale in Whole Foods. So I, I think the, the ability of U.S. agencies to have matching funds is an incentive for private sector actors to actually go in and develop partnerships that we can work together on. Okay, and, I, and thank you, Mr. Chairman. I just want to thank Starbucks and Coca-Cola for their advocacy on climate change. Uh, I think it's very, very important. We've been told the Washington Post reported that the administration has been advised to pull out of the Paris Agreement, and uh, I think that would be a terrible thing, but it's good to know that they are private sector companies are stepping up and saying that it is an important issue for us to have to deal with. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. We want to thank all of you for being here. Uh, Mr. Goldsman, uh, Senator Card noticed you took advantage of a branding opportunity there in front of you. Um, but uh, we, uh, we appreciate all of your testimony. We, uh, it's been, uh, I think, very helpful to all of us. The record will remain open through uh, Close business Friday, and if you could respond fairly quickly, we know hey, we have other responsibilities. Uh, Congressman Coleman, it's 
good to see you again. Thank you for all of your life's work. Uh, and with that, the meeting is adjourned. Thank you.